Prepare yourself to be utterly terrified of these horrifying animals. Brace yourselves to never leave your house again. Stock up on pesticides. Have your exterminator on speed dial. I'm just kidding. After this episode, the only thing you should be afraid of is the extinction of these impossibly misunderstood creatures. Today's guest was an easy and no-brainer pick. Austin Reich is a certified interpretive guide and Idaho master naturalist. His favorite animals are frogs, of course, but we'll explore that a little later. And his favorite coffee? In his words, the best coffee I have ever had was in Monteverde, a reserve in Costa Rica famous for bird watching, un cafecito con leche with some banana bread. Nothing fancy, but its flavor was rich and fresh with a slightly fruity aftertaste. In concert with my physical context, it was my absolute favorite cup of coffee I've ever had. Stateside, I enjoy a brevet with a dash of white chocolate. Aside from being a walking animal encyclopedia, the last time I saw Austin, he was teaching someone how to properly handle hissing cockroaches. So yeah, when it came to locating a really smart science human that could wax lyrical on all things creepy crawly, he was the obvious choice. All right, fam, grab your favorite magic bean juice and let's get this not so scary show on the road. Austin, thank you so much for being here today. Super appreciate you taking time out of your week for this episode. Yeah, of course. Anytime anybody wants me to talk about um, maybe the animals that don't get as much love, I'm always down to be there. Awesome. And I know that these ones definitely do not get enough love. Um, my, I actually was terrified of snakes up until about two years ago when I fell in love with a little baby rose gold python and she was the cutest thing I'd ever seen and holding her completely changed my idea of what snakes are. And as we approach this ho uh, Halloween season where we get into the creepy crawlies um, and the thousands of misconceptions that surround them, I really want to, one, really show people that there's really nothing to be afraid of, and two, the only thing we should really be afraid of is if these animals go extinct. And since I know that that is one of your favorite things to talk about, let's go ahead and get this started. First of all, when I emailed you, you told me what herpetologist meant. So I would like to start with that. What does it mean? Yeah, a herpetologist is somebody who studies reptiles and amphibians. They gets its its name in a really funny way. If you've ever heard of the, of the gentleman Carl Linnaeus, he's the guy who came up with um, yes. binomial nomenclature or giving animals their scientific name. He, he kind of started trying to categorize all these animals, which is a really noble goal. However, at the time, I don't think he realized just how many different species there would be in the planet. But when he was originally categorizing all these animals, he looked at amphibians and reptiles, and he was famously not very fond of them. There's uh, lots of quotes of Carl <laughs> being like, these disgusting creatures that dwell low to the ground with their horrible countenances and then awful poisons. And it's like, tell us how you really feel, Carl. Oh no! So he used the Latin word of herpes or herpet, which is to creep or creeping, like creeping down on the ground. And so he says, those who study them are herpetologists. They study creeping things. Um, but it's officially the study of reptiles and amphibians. And that was what uh, my background in university was and, and my first professional love, I should say. That's awesome. And also very sad for these poor little creatures who didn't deserve such a terrible name. Badge of honor. It is. Yes, totally. So why do you personally think people are so afraid of these animals like snakes and amphibians? And I know bats are not in that category and also spiders. But what do you think? Do you think it's something in like a deep part of our monkey brain that's like, oh, 
Uncanny Valley, or what do you think? I, I think definitely our, our inner fish, I like to call it, is going to be affected by that. Our, our frontal lobe is the only part that's really, you know, the rational human, and that's only a very small portion of our brain. And so usually there's some sort of negative experience with these animals that automatically makes us averse to them. So snakes, for example, to be as safe as possible, our brain kind of paints with a broad brush and goes, any kind of snake is potentially a danger. There's been studies done with really, really young children, babies, that they measure kind of how much their brain activity is going when they see different animals, and they show them like a puppy and, you know, a, a wild animal like a zebra or an elephant or all these things. Whenever it comes to pictures of like snakes or spiders or things like that, these babies who have had no encounter of these animals in the past will have a relatively higher amount of brain activity or function or the, basically the brain is trying to memorize or analyze everything that is going on with this animal um, because there's definitely something instinctual with our, our, our genuine dislike towards them. But it is painting with a broad brush. We're, we're trying to protect ourselves from the boom slings of, of the world, those super, super venomous snakes that are really fast and maybe uh, a little bit more defensive than others, but then we see a rubber boa or a garter snake and we have the same reaction. So we're profiling, basically. Yeah, I will tell you my first encounter with the snake, I was actually a toddler and I remember it because it was, it's so ingrained in the mm -hmm. hippocampus. Um, for me, I stepped on a gardener snake when I was a toddler and I remember it hissing at me and from then on I was terrified of snakes. And it wasn't anything rational. I mean, it's mm -hmm. a garter snake. They're not going to do anything. But for me, being small and terrified at everything, yeah, I can see why that would happen. But you're a different case, though, because you overcame that, like, primal fear, and then you went to study them. So what was the thought process behind that? Were you like, I just love these, and I've always mm -hmm. loved these, or, you know? Excellent, excellent question. A lot of a lot of scientists always like to have some sort of origin story. Uh, if you've ever heard of Edward O. Wilson, his origin story is that he got injured he hurt his eyes when he was much much younger and so the only things he could ever study in life were things that he had to look really really closely and he ended up being an ant biologist right because he couldn't study through binoculars and my the joke that i always make is that i was always a fan of animals it's a very common story with people who end up working with biology or, or wildlife or anything like that it's like, oh ever since i could remember i loved animals but most things that have fur i'm allergic to it makes me sneeze i get watery eyes and oh, no. as a result, I like to joke that I went to things that didn't have fur, which is going to be reptiles, amphibians. Um, and then I am, you know, born and raised in Idaho, so I know about trout, but other than that, fish are to the ocean. As a result, reptiles and amphibians, that's my, that was my thing. I love that. Okay, so now I know one of your favorite things to do is to talk about them, given what you do mm -hmm. for work. Um, so now it is your time to shine. We're going to go through these very common misconceptions related to snakes, frogs, and amphibians, spiders, and bats. And you're going to tell people why they shouldn't be afraid of them. Perfect. So we're going to start with snakes. Number one, snakes are naturally aggressive and they will chase you. Yeah, that's... That's not true. I mean, there might, there's definitely going to be a couple of species that their their instinctual reaction is going to be to put on a, a what we think of as an aggressive display, usually, again, for that shock factor. But there's no snakes that eat humans, first of all. Not even, like, the, the giant boas in the, the rainforest? Yeah, exactly. There's been uh, recorded huh. experiences of, of them eating humans, but they're super, super rare, and it's usually for, like, a small child which I know that's not necessarily mm -hmm. much better, but our shoulders, our armpits are actually a, a really good snake defense since we're bipedal. Huh. 
since the snake has to be able to open its mouth wide enough to be able to swallow its prey whole when it gets to our armpits, either either direction from our head down or from our feet up, it can't actually go around our arms. So we're not good snake food. So that's number one. There's no snakes that want to eat us, really. And number two, we're much bigger than most snakes. By 99% of snakes, we're going to be bigger than. And so snakes want nothing to do with us. I was helping a PhD student in BSU do some rattlesnake surveys in an undisclosed location in Idaho. And the rattle would go off. You know, you get closer, you can hear the rattle. And that should be. If you hear that rattle, that's, you should back away slowly from the snake. However, when you're researching snakes, rattlesnakes, you go towards that, go towards that sound. And as soon as we crossed some imaginary threshold of how close we were getting to the snake, the rattlesnake, every single time, if it wasn't backed into a corner, it was trying to run away. So snakes are not going to be chasing you down. They're not going to be uh, aggressively trying to attack you. They're going to be trying to try to run away and get away because it's a, it's a cliche, but they're definitely more afraid of you than you are of them. Do you think if snakes have nightmares, they, they dream about humans and we dream about them? <laughs> Maybe. That's a good question. I think if snakes had nightmares then that would probably be uh, a fairly common one, I would guess. Okay, so here's the big one. And I think I've always thought this ever since Robin Hood, just because apparently that was like my favorite Disney movie. But the biggest one is snakes hypnotize their prey. True or false? So that's going to be that's gonna be false. In, in the animal world, hypnotization is not a very common strategy. I think, it's, I think you find it in a couple of cuttlefish um, and then a couple of insects. But most snakes are going to be either ambush predators, so they wait in the same place for sometimes days, and then when usually a rodent or something runs by, they get to lash out really quickly and eat it. Or they're going to be chasing after prey uh, where they live, for example. So you'll chase after groundhogs uh, or, or mice in their dens and stuff like that. So hypnotizing is, is not a common or not not something that snakes do. Interesting. Here's the third one. All triangular-headed snakes are venomous. And I think this kind of goes with the other, like, those rhymes of, like, black on red and red on black or whatever. Like, how true are those, mm. like, protection rhymes, if you will? So <clears throat> that can... That can come in handy very often. However, biology is the science of exceptions. Uh, a good example, so if we're talking about the triangular head, that is indicative of a viper, uh, something, a snake in the family Viperidae, right? Um, is that triangular head. And so if you're like, oh, if it has a triangular head, it's venomous, you should stay away from it. That's a pretty good rule of thumb. But there's going to be a lot of non-venomous snakes that will either mimic that because generally people stay away from triangle-headed snakes or animals in general stay away from that. So you'll get a lot of snakes that try to flatten their head out whenever they get scared or something like that. Or they'll even rattle their tail in places where you find rattlesnakes. So while a general misconception is still a good one to hold yeah. on to then for triangle-headed yes. snakes. Okay. And then the rhymes, which I don't even remember them. I don't either. I'm having to look yeah, them up. <laughs> are, are usually pretty correct, but you're going to have even differences from individual to individual or from population to population. So where it might be most correct in certain areas, if you go you know, on, on the fringe of a population's range, you might find a different phenotypic expression. You might find a different expression of what those colors look like, but it would be the same species. My rule of thumb when interacting with snakes is give them their space, period. That's it. Uh, it doesn't matter what kind of snake. You can look at them and admire them, but typically handling a snake is going to stress it out and interacting with it. So rather than trying to figure out whether it's dangerous or not, just give it some space. It'll go away if you don't want it there, or you can walk around it, and it'll everyone will be happy. Like the snakes are just natural introverts. So there's just like some life advice for natural extroverts. Just, just leave exactly. them alone. 
famous one, made famous by every Western movie from 1940 to 1960. Uh, snake bites should be sucked out. Um, so that was that that was and and somewhat still is actual medical advice, and you might get some venom out of a snake bite. However, uh, in this in our time of modern medicine and and whatnot, the absolute best thing to do is to get to your nearest source of anti-venom. So basically, if you get bit by a venomous snake, try to either take a picture of that snake so they know what kind of snake bit somebody. And then keep whatever, wherever the bite was, try to keep that below the heart because uh, venom is going to be transported by your blood. It's kind of weird to say, but you got to stay calm because if you get super, super stressed out and your heart's beating crazy fast, you're just going to continue pumping that venom throughout the rest of your body. Don't apply a tourniquet. That will not prevent the venom from reaching other parts of your body. You can try sucking out some venom because that might take out a small amount of volume. But research has shown that it's it's almost negligible. Huh. Do you have any, like, keep calm strategies? <laughs> because I don't imagine anyone keeping calm. It's just like, in my mind, I know that rattlesnake bites aren't necessarily mm -hmm. fatal. But in my mind, every bite by a rattlesnake would be like, I'm dead. I'm dead. And this is how I go. Yeah. Like, how, how would you recommend someone be calm after being bitten by a snake? <laughs> Well, uh, there's a couple of different things that you can you can do to, to do that. I mean, any sort of meditative technique is going to help, right? Um, but as far as the actual snakes go, mm -hmm. you can remind yourself, if you if you can remember, that venom is expensive. Uh, it takes a lot of energy to make. And so actually, when most, or a good, a good chunk of bites that a, a snake will give you, if it's a venomous snake, it won't release any venom because it it just wants it's it's just trying to say get away from leave me alone it's again it's not it's not trying to kill you because what's it going to do it can't eat you venom right. is for the prey so oftentimes it won't even release venom so you might get bit and it's possible there's not even any venom in your system i had no idea i just thought that you yeah. know <laughs> that was it enjoy your nasty nasty yeah, it's bite called dry bite dry bite okay and so you can keep that in mind and say oh Chances are I don't even I'm not, haven't even been envenomated, but still go to the hospital just in case. And then you can remind yourself their their teeth are going to be super hypodermic, and so you might bleed a lot, but you probably won't even feel mm -hmm. a lot of pain. Have you ever been bitten? I have not. I've never been struck by a snake. I've worked with a lot of snakes, um, but again, snakes don't want to bite unless they're super stressed out. And the only time I've worked out worked with super stressed out snakes, we had plenty of safety precautions. Uh, snake chaps, uh, snake hooks, different kinds of, um, of safety precautions for that, for like for the rattlesnake research, for example. But any snake I've worked with otherwise has always been pretty chill. And then they're also very obvious with how they want to communicate. If they're saying, let go, you're going to hear a hiss or you're going to see a lot of movement prior to, all right, that's it, I'm going to bite you. That's very polite of them. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Most of the time, somebody who's been bitten by a snake I would say 80% of the time is usually the person's fault. When I worked with the state fish and, fish and game kind of institute, worked with them for a bit, a, a saying is that whenever a rattlesnake bite was reported, they usually started with, hold my beer. <laughs> so, That's a very Idaho uh, thing to say. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh my goodness. Okay, so, so far we have learned that uh, snakes are introverts. They're very polite and they just want to be left alone and they're also very frugal. So that kind of leads in the next one where it's just like there's a blanket throughout history snakes are just straight up mm -hmm. evil they're you know representations of evil i mean anyone who lives in western society and even eastern society would probably think of a myth or a legend or anything that would associate with snake as being what we consider 
evil. Do you have any thoughts on this as someone who loves yeah, them? Yeah, totally. Again, it kind of comes from that. We do have an ancient relationship with snakes where, you know, Australopithecus, longtime ancestor, might be yeah we even see another in other great apes orangutans chimpanzees gorillas that are they're just completely averse to snakes in, instinctually and so as a result it's going to be in a worldly ethos of like avoid snakes they're evil we don't want interact with them and that's you know that's good advice uh generally if you're dealing with snakes and you don't know them on a species level or anything like that uh, they're not evil. Even in, you know, potentially the more famous example of an evil snake, the the Garden of Eden, even later, it's still Old Testament, but I think there's a book of the Bible that talks about the Leviathan, right? The big giant monster in the sea. Mm-hmm. And this is, in, the, in this book is narrated by God. And he talks about how mm-hmm. it's not evil. It's not bad. Even though it would kill you in an instant, it would crush you or anything like that. It is just another part of this beautiful creation we see around us in the earth. And so even in the same text, the same, you know, religious text, we can usually see something of something is not evil just because it's trying to survive, right? You don't consider a frog evil for eating a bug. Maybe from the perspective right. of the bug, they might be. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just doing its part in nature. And, and for snakes, that's a really, really important role. It's really, really interesting. They are going to be keeping uh, down rodent populations, and rodents are vectors of disease. They're going to be even keeping in check other other snake populations. So a lot of people, like, for example, here in Idaho, will kill gopher snakes because they look like rattlesnakes. But gopher snakes and rattlesnakes occupy the same natural niche. And so if you've got gopher snakes in your yard, then you're not going to have rattlesnakes in your yard. Um so you kill all your gopher snakes, and then the next snake that moves in might not be a gopher snake. It might be a rattlesnake. And so it's all these kinds of things that they, they play these really, really important roles. They are not intrinsically evil. They don't have malicious intent. And usually, well, not even usually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wager 100% of the time any sort of behavior from a snake that might you might deem aggressive is going to be defensive. So short answer, uh, too long, didn't read. Snakes are not evil. <laughs> I agree with you now. Me five years ago would have been like, no, they're the worst thing that I've ever been created. But I do love the answer of like, how can I be evil when it is a part of this beautiful, beautiful ecosystem we have? The other thing that I wanted to ask as far as uh, benefits, now that you talked about like, you know, the environmental benefit of keeping pest populations down, the medical benefit of snakes. And I don't think people really give a lot of thought to how much snakes have actually uh, given as a gift to modern medicine. Uh, yeah, I think... I mean, a big, a big portion, I think, is going to be anti-venom uh, for against snake bites. But these venoms are really, really complex molecules, and, and we often synthesize stuff based off, or we synthesize, you know, biomedical compounds and drugs and things like that based off of natural examples. And this this concept of bioprospecting, of finding the basically really unique puzzle pieces that you can find in venoms, is largely untapped. Not on the list. What is the coolest snake in your opinion? That's a really hard question. Maybe I've got a couple couple of answers, but especially here in Idaho, one of the coolest snakes is the rubber boa. It's the most northern boa species, so it's it's still related to the other boas, the other big, big snakes, but it's probably maxes out at a foot, and that's a big rubber boa. A little, yeah, little guy. A little, little guy. And they're constrictors, and they're super docile. They're called rubber boas because they feel like like rubber they got little tiny tiny scales they're super super smooth they're the most docile snakes ever i'm still not going to recommend that you ever go out and pick them up however the rubber boas i've worked with my old herpetology advisor he he would joke he's like you could slap them across the face and they would apologize to you that's how nice they are 
<laughs> they're the Canadian exactly. snakes. Um, but you can find them here in Idaho, and they're amazing. But they're, it's funny because they're so so docile and so sweet and so soft. But their main prey item is baby mice, and they have a really really fat tail, and they use that tail to pretend like they're striking with their tail, and the mom mouse is gonna start attacking the tail. And so whenever you see a rubber roll in the wild, you look at the tail, it's all like torn up and shredded and stuff like that. It's on purpose. Uh, but while mom's fighting this tail, the head is just going around to all the little the, the little pinky baby mice and eating two or three of them before moving on. As, as dark and as terrible as that sounds, I know it's so important for keeping mice populations down, especially when it comes to crop destruction, yeah. you know, home invasion, disease. So nature's cruel. But it's on purpose. It's fair. It's balanced. Um, yes. <laughs> okay, so moving on from snakes. Let's uh, talk about amphibians. Personally, I think they're the cutest thing ever, but I can't say that there's ever been any moment in my life, <clears throat> excuse me, where I've wanted to actually pick one up and touch it. Um, mostly because one of the myths that we're going to talk about. But the biggest one, I, my mom told me this growing up. I asked my husband if he was told this growing up. But touching a frog or a toad is going to give you warts. Yes or no? No, it won't. It won't give you warts. Warts is usually, um, it's an internal thing. You, you get it from something that's in your skin, I believe. Uh, citation needed on that. I'm not a, a physician. <laughs> Picking up frogs or toads. Frogs and toads may be some of the cleanest animals. No way. No way. And the reason for this is because huh. they have, their, their skin is a semi-permeable membrane. And it's for... Most frogs and toads, or most amphibians, um, salamanders, newts, Sicilians, all that, uh, their skin is usually a big part of their respiratory system. So the water that is touching their skin is used to transfer oxygen into their blood. And so some amphibians don't even have lungs just because they get their gas exchanged through their skin. What? I, I had, this is the craziest yeah. thing. I'm sorry. This is, I, my entire childhood was a Hold lie. Hold on to your seats. <laughs> no kidding. And as a result, they need to be in, typically, there's there's going to be some frogs that have adaptations that help them uh, live in a little bit dirtier water. But typically, you've got to be in clean water that is free of toxins, of pollutants, in order to breathe. And if you dry out, you'll suffocate. So they're pretty clean. They, they, imagine if the outside of your, if your skin was made out of your lungs instead. What kind of situation or habitat would you want to place yourself in? So... Do they have, like, really highly developed immune systems then? Because in my head, like, I was always told, like, frogs and toads and amphibians are, like, literally the dirtiest creatures because they live in gross swamplands and they're just nasty. But if they need all of these, you know, clean water, um, you know, all of that, you know, and they do come in contact with pathogens because some do mm -hmm. live in more dirty areas, are they just, like, the super, like, white blood cell carrying creatures? Not quite. More specifically, they're, they've developed with these pathogens usually okay. over time, long, long time. So they just have not necessarily a white, white blood cell response. Their cell membranes on their skin will basically have these gates that let in the oxygen and the water and everything you need from there. But it, they're shaped so that all these other pathogens and stuff like that don't come in. This is the craziest thing I've learned all day. I'm happy to tell everyone I know yeah. <laughs> Everybody, what a frog fact! This is the coolest thing I've ever learned. I had no yeah. idea. Okay, so that, you know, I'm gonna kind of go out of order here. Um, that goes into like, if you handle like frogs and amphibians, like, you, they just, you're just gonna get salmonella and you're gonna die. Like, that's another one that I got told growing mm. up. One of the reasons why I never wanted to 
touch a frog. I know there's many reasons of why you wouldn't want to touch a frog just for its own sake, but the salmonella thing, let's talk about that. Yeah, I haven't heard of somebody getting salmonella from an amphibian. I wouldn't say that it's unheard of, but largely the bigger salmonella carrier is going to be repped. Turtles, tortoises, snakes, lizards, they can carry salmonella on their skin. And so um, I think I've known some herpetologists that have had salmonella like six or seven. Is it a badge of honor amongst herpetologists? Like, yeah. No, honestly, I think it might have been historically, uh, but now it's mostly like, you should have washed your hands. <laughs> Just run around. You are nasty. Yeah, like, you've had it that many times. I'm not going over to your house Exactly. Again. It's like, it's not too difficult to, it, you know, it, it dissolves in a, in a, a soap, right? It, it, it kills the, sal- the salmonella. So just wash your hands and, you know, have a little bit more lab <laughs> etiquette. <Goodness. laughs> Don't be Don't gross. Be gross. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, but yes, you can get salmonella from reptiles. And so you should, uh, one, really do your best just not to bother them. And two, if you ha- if you do, you know, you help a turtle across the road, you, you know, are removing a, a snake from your house or something like that. Just wash your hands. So the next one, first of all, we need to talk about about why anyone would have the urge to lick mm-hmm. a toad. Um, but the intoxication with toads, what is going on with that? I've only like heard of it. I've never looked really into mm-hmm. it. What's going on? All right, PB, are you you're sitting down? I am sitting okay. down. Rapt okay. attention. I'm, I might blow your mind here really quick. Okay. All frogs, so this includes toads, all frogs and toads, are poisonous. What? Yeah. Every neuron, so frogs and toads, ha- they all have poison. Some of them are not expressed as nearly as much, but they all have these glands in their skin. And they're all these poisons. If you're going to talk about bioprospecting bio with like snakes, frogs uh, eclipse them by a magnitude of at least 10. They've all created their own poisons that do multiple different things. It's absolutely mind-blowing to most biochemists organic chemists are like frog skin is crazy and as a result uh, of the thousands of species of frogs out there there will be some that interact with our with our brains i guess and so famously the cane toad is that you can find in central south america produces a toxin but the the cane toad uh, with a lot of these even today but historically anciently these central south american native americans would incorporate licking the cane toad's parotid glands, those big glands right behind the eyes, getting a high off of that. It's a it's a really really strong psychedelic, and you'll you'll basically have a, a trip. You'll see things and colors, and things will all change. But I'm not gonna recommend that you do this because it's still a poison. It's meant to be bad, bad for you. And so if you lick too much, or you can either just get a bad tummy ache, or you could die. You know, <laughs> it's like people and like eating mushrooms. Like this one tastes like chicken. Uh-huh. This one made me see God, and this one killed Bob. Exactly. Gosh. So, okay. Do you think the princess who kissed the frog was actually hallucinating Prince Charming, and this tale is actually a much more dark nightmare than you know maybe than what has been told? This maybe. Oh my gosh, I had no idea one that all of them were poisonous. Mm-hmm. Um, you were right, that did blow my mind, I'm sitting over here basically speechless, and I had no idea that, that they were such a fertile field for, uh, 
uh, medical research, I honestly thought that that was mostly snakes. So, wow. Do you think maybe, so like for question four, like toads, and I'm going to throw newts in here and mm. other slangy things um, being associated with witches, do you think that has a lot to do with their hallucinogenic and psychedelic properties? Or is it just uh, one of those same things like, this is gross, stay away from it, and then because of that attitude, they just get associated with uh, like traditionally evil things? I think the association uh, is probably comes from that original, you should stay away from this, don't, don't eat this uh instinct <laughs> but i wouldn't be surprised if the you know the mind-bending effects of some some toxins uh played a part in their their mythos regarding like salamanders and newts and things like that where the, you know you get they have this reputation of being associated with fire is actually a really <laughs> funny one more specifically these salamanders and these newts liked burrowing into logs and eating bugs that are in those logs but then you go and you throw those logs onto a fire and since, again, they're amphibians, they don't like heat. At the first sign of, oh boy, this is uncomfortable, this is drying me out, I need to get out and find a wet spot, you would get these hordes of salamanders and newts just leaving out of a fresh fire. And so the, oh, the no. idea is that they came from the fire, where, you know, they're perfectly hidden in these in these logs. You didn't see them when you picked them up, because their instinct when they get moved like that is to hide. But as soon as the fire starts, they're like, oh boy, I gotta get out of here. And so that's, you know, that's where we get the fire salamanders and stuff, stuff like that. And, and then that one also is going to affect how people see newts and salamanders and be like, this this is witchcraft. We started a fire. Now, you know, now there's life. Oh my gosh. So. That is, uh, I had no idea. That is bananas. But yeah, I can see how like uh, some dude from the 1400s, you know, stumbling across like one for the first time with lose his pantaloons yeah, I know I would. after seeing that i uh, i would spiders i am i have yet to overcome my fear of spiders there's just something about them that my brain just immediately breaks like i love jumping spiders they're so cute but also there's still a part of my brain that's just like oh gross so we're gonna try to do my best i'm gonna do my best to try to dispel some yeah, of these myths and uh, hopefully have a better appreciation okay so number one same like snakes all spiders are dangerous, and they will bite you. What do you think? So, yeah, not all spiders are dangerous. A lot of them are going to be really just harmless. Uh, they're going to be eating with their webs mosquitoes and uh, flies and even the bugs that are so small you can't see them because there's going to be spiders that you can't see them because they're so small. I think it's it's definitely recorded that, are, that there are a couple spiders that will, like, feed on humans, but it's usually, you know, you wake up with a spider bite and you're like, oh, that's weird. So it's really not a not something that we should be worrying about spider-wise. Um, but there are there are spiders. The classic example is like the black widow that have enough venom that can cause us severe pain, and if we're bit in the right spot, can cause us death. So uh, it's it's a healthy fear that we've expanded towards all spiders, which is you know kind of the kind of the story that we're going with a lot of these. Yeah, and I think honestly, you know, hearing you say healthy fear and talk about it, I think. You know, we should also think about that in terms of respect, too. So respect in, in definition of these animals is more of like a, it's a healthy fear. Yeah. And that's that deep respect. Like, they're also individuals. They just want to do their own thing. Leave them alone. Don't touch them. Don't aggravate them. Don't be a jerk and go poke a spider and be mad when it bites you type of yeah. deal. We seem to have a really good understanding that not all humans can be, you know, super aggressive, but that we should still give people their respect. Right. But we have a hard time expanding that to... Uh, animals where you're like oh all all this is bad 
So you did mention like getting bit by spiders at night, which I swear that's the only time I ever get bit by them. Never find the perpetrators. They're always long mm -hmm. gone. But what is this like myth? Is there any truth to the myth of like eating like, I don't know if it's 40 spiders, like eight spiders a year. Like are spiders just like waking up in the middle of the night going like, you know what I want to do today? I want to be eaten alive by this really weird snoring ape. So I'm going to climb into its mouth and um, you know, that's the end of me. What is, is that a thing? I can't, I can't verify the stats. I can't be like, oh, you know, there's eight or ten or whatever. Um, but there are definitely recorded instances of probably just kind of poor spiders that are looking for a place to hide. And especially in the winter months, you might, you might find a nice warm cave that you're like, oh, this is nice. Let's stay in here. Not only to realize that it's, it's not, not a cave. Um, but that is like oh, really, really. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wager that that's incredibly rare. Um, I think. Yeah. For most of the time, that's not that's not gonna be something that you should worry about. I mean, if if you're if you're tired of your spouse snoring, um, and they're afraid of spiders, maybe you can just mention that, you know, open mouth snoring is gonna attract spiders. <laughs> so it's like it's a useful misconception. Yeah, exactly. Like we'll just use it. <laughs> I don't think that would be a our, our quote unquote healthy fear. Okay, that's that's fair, and then this is a myth and that I heard growing up and I'm super curious. So daddy long legs, which I know are very different from harvestman spider, which I just learned, um, are the most poisonous spiders on the planet, but their fangs are too small to bite you. So what like is, okay, you have the most poisonous spider on the planet. It's not going to try to bite you. It's like, I don't know. Like what, what is this? What, what is this? Yeah. So they're not, that daddy long legs as we know them here in the States or even, Man, not even some of the states. I know there's some misconceptions about what is a daddy long leg and what is because it's it's a colloquial term, right? Yeah. So there's a daddy long leg spider, which is is actually a spider around here in Idaho and in the places that I've been uh, in the U.S. When people say daddy long leg, they are pointing to a group of spiders, or again, they're not spiders. A group of arachnids that aren't spiders, like scorpions are arachnids, um, ticks are arachnids. Mm -hmm group of arachnids that are not spiders and they're called daddy long legs and those are the the harvestmen is the is the term yeah that. so you've got two two terms for two different animals um kind of how in america we say robin and we're talking about um the american robin and in the uk you hear robin and it's a completely different bird i also didn't know that chalk that up for things i learned today well, um, well, well that'll be next episode <laughs> um yeah, and I didn't even, like, I didn't realize when I was, like, writing down these questions, and I looked it up, like, it's not even a, like, the U.S. daddy long leg isn't even a spider. Yeah. Which I was just like, okay, there's more of my childhood that was a lie. So, those there we Those go. daddy long legs, um, the ones that got really, have really long spindly legs, and they've got, like, a little tiny, like, their body and their face looks just like a, like a, like a sprinkle. It's just like a little dot. That, they don't have, they don't even have venom gland. Okay. And so... The ones that we, that I at least, that I think most people, from my perspective, consider daddy long legs, are not even toxic at all. So they don't they don't have any venom. So the other daddy long legs, the actual spider ones, do they have venom, and where do they live? So all those, all spiders have venom. What? Okay, yeah. here we go. Learning more, so I'm gonna write this down. But I don't know necessarily. I think their I think their fangs are long enough to penetrate human skin, but I don't think. I don't think they're too. I've never heard of you know when we whenever I've been through like entomology talks or stuff like that. Nobody's ever like, oh those, 
the daddy long leg spiders. Watch out for them. They'll they'll get you. You know, you'll get a bad so It's an epidemic. Exactly. So I don't know. I can't. It, it's definitely possible that they are fairly venomous. Um, and I've just never heard of it. That's definitely on the table. But from my perspective, I've never heard of somebody saying, watch out for brown recluse, black widows, and the daddy long leg spider. Yeah. So what is the most venomous spider? Uh, that's a good question. I actually don't know that off the top. No, no worries. I'll look it up and then I'll be like, this is it. But you don't have to worry about it because, <clears throat> excuse me, chances are it probably doesn't even live in the U.S., yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna wager <clears throat> Australia. Okay. I think. Yes, <laughs> the land of like wagering your own lifespan. Uh-huh. Okay, so what is the most venomous spider? To no one's surprise, it does come from Australia. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, there are two spiders that are constantly competing for the title. But right now, that title is currently held by the Sydney Funnel Web Spider. Their venom is a specific FU to humans and other primates, as it does not affect the nervous systems of other mammals quite as strongly. So they really have it out for you. If you do get bit, it's usually by the dude spider, as they tend to wander about, and you have exactly one hour before D-Day. The bite is super painful, but give it some time and it'll get worse. You'll start secreting saliva excessively, your muscles will start twitching, your breathing will become difficult, and then you'll fall unconscious. Thankfully, we do have anti-venom, so yay. In the running for first place is the Brazilian wandering spider, which belongs to the genus Phonutria, literally meaning murderous in Greek, which that's a bit of a misnomer because the Brazilian wandering spider isn't necessarily an aggressive spider, but it is aggressive when provoked. Duh. If you do feel like provoking a spider today, go ahead, make my day. And you do get bit, prepared for heart and blood pressure issues, nausea, abdominal cramping, excessive sweating, vertigo, blurry vision, and if you're a male primate, you may develop something called priapism. And if there are small ears also listening with you, imagine taking a large dose of Viagra, but instead of it being fun, it's really painful, and then you die. This island still get those weird things. Islands are just funky. The worst spider, I don't even know if it's a spider, I don't know if it's like in the spider family, I think it is, was a cane spider in Hawaii. Ooh, that sounds... <gasps> that... Sounds bad. They're just big. They're, they're harmless, of course. Like, I mean, yeah, they're venomous and they, they have the tendency to bite you, but like, like most bugs, they're like, please just leave me alone, mm-hmm. ma'am. Yeah. <laughs> On to our final creepy critter of the evening, and this was a crowd favorite when I asked um, my Instagram people what they wanted mm-hmm. to know. Bats, which aren't in the technical creepy crawly as they are a mammal, um, I think the thing with bats, um, especially for me, that people freak out about is rabies. Yeah. Like in my brain, every bat has rabies. And if I even get within like breathing distance of a bat, I am also going to get rabies and die a terrible death. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera, ad nauseum. So the first myth I'd like uh, you to talk about is one: all bats are carriers of rabies. And then let's talk about rabies reports, rabies exposure. Etc. Mm-hmm. So bats are awesome. They're the only mammal that can fly. They're one of the most speciose groups of mammals in general. They you get everything from the six foot wingspan of the flying fox to the bumblebee bat, which weighs like three jelly beans. My mind blowing fact for this segment is likely less than one percent of all bats in the wild have rabies. What? So why do they get such a bad rap then? Because in my brain, like, again, 100% of bats have rabies and they're out to get Mm -hmm. you. So where's that coming from then? It usually comes from because 
uh, what time of day are bats out? Okay, night. You merely adopted the dark. I was born in it, molded by it. When is it that you see a bat that you're like, with them being most active at night, when people see them out during the day, and that means that usually there's something wrong with that bat. Oh, okay. Okay. And so, even though less than 1% of wild bats have rabies, the bats that we interact with are more likely to be sick in some way. And so, if you have a bat colony of sometimes, you know, a few million, less than 1% of that few million might actually be a significant amount. And then of those, you might see some during the day. So, that's why it's it's more likely that the one that we're seeing that's crawling around on the ground during the day has something and you should avoid it so if you do get a bat in your house um, especially if it's during the day especially if it looks like it's acting strange you should avoid touching at all costs just just because all those signs are indicative of it you know something's not right and if you if you do interact with a bat during the day and you're not sure if you got bit or scratched or anything like that you should go to the hospital and get a rabies series of shots um, and that's just over an abundance of caution so they're not going to be out to get you. Rabies will have like an increased aggressiveness, but so will most sicknesses. If you've ever been with a significant other who's under the weather, you usually have less patience, <laughs> right? Yeah. But that's kind of where that idea of like, oh man, bats are vectors of diseases. Um, but in reality, they're kind of the opposite. They're, they're a disease sink. They eat ticks. They eat a lot of these vectors, mosquitoes, right? And they're able to withstand malaria and Lyme disease and all these things. So they, they minimize the amount of animals that do give us these diseases. They, they, they bear it on their shoulders and then they take it with flying colors. No pun intended. Oh, these poor little guys are the unsung heroes. We think they're the villains all, but all along. Mm -hmm. They've been, they've been taking the brunt of all the diseases for us. I'm learning so much. I'm, I'm currently writing notes that right now. Good. Say you do encounter a bat in the daytime and it's in your house. And you don't want to even, like, kind of risk, you know, having to catch it. Who do you call? Like, who's the, the Ghostbusters for the um, Usually, there will be a, uh, a state department that has, you know, for Idaho, it's Idaho Fishing Game, right? You should call them, typically, because they'll have uh, a lab associated that they can then test that bat. And they'll have people who know how to train it and do stuff like that. Typically, contact your, your state department or your local, even in an animal control situation, they'll usually have... Uh, somebody who knows what they're doing, or at least know who knows what they're doing, tell them. But try to get it into try to get it into a room by itself that you can like close the door, make sure it doesn't get out. Call your local authorities; and they'll send somebody out to get it. Out. That's good to know because in the U.S., if you don't have insurance, it's like three to seven thousand dollars for a rabies vaccine. Yes. Which, <laughs> yikes! So the other misconception about bats is even though they have eyes, they're blind and they use uh, echolocation exclusively to navigate. Is that true or is that false? Um, that's false. And that's also a very Western perspective. Because if you're on uh, the Eastern Hemisphere, most of your bats are megachiroptera. Those are the diurnal fruit-eating bats that can get up to six feet long, right? So they have really, really great eyes and really, really big eyes. And so if, you're, if somebody said you were blind as a bat, you'd be confused. But here in the Western Hemisphere, we have microchiroptera and those are the insect eating bats that are nocturnal as well as vampiridae the vampire bats and things like that and they do use echolocation but they're not blind they have fairly good eyesight but more impressively their echolocation 
is going to be good enough to fly at night and catch mosquitoes, for example, out of out of the air. So I think it's that's the more impressive impressive part. They're not blind; they can see fairly well, but they're that echolocation is just a, such an insane ability, really amazing anatomical feet. It is, and now I feel really bad being scared about bats because here they are, little superheroes of the night, eating mosquitoes and just going about their way, mm. and. They're actually, they've got their superpower, and also great eyesight, and here we are being like, they're the worst, most disgusting little creatures that ever existed. Mm. And I think a lot of that comes from the next uh, misconception, is the idea of bats and drinking blood, when vampire bats are actually, now correct me if I'm wrong, they're actually a pretty small percentage of the species of bats, right? Yeah. I mean, there's there's the family of Vampiridae, probably the best naming family, scientific family you could be a part of. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how many species are in that family, but comparatively to the thousands of species of other bats. Later, Austin emailed me to tell me there are roughly 1,400 species of bats, which is still a butt-ton of bats. Uh, it's fairly small, and there's very, 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 very few recordings of them actually drinking blood from humans. Usually they prefer, like, livestock or like just bigger animals that you can land on, get a really good footing, basically. Humans are awkward, hard to land on. Y yes, in so many ways. <laughs> I, I did have my one, my friend who made or who helped me write this episode. She had a really like interesting question I never thought of. So vampire mm -hmm. bats, would they be considered a pest, or do they provide some benefit to the animals that they are like? I'm just gonna borrow this. Okay, thanks and bye. If you're a farmer, you might consider them a pest because, like, if you have some cows, they'll you. When a vampire bite is drinking blood, they don't actually have like the hollow fangs like you see in, in movies. They use their teeth. Mm -hmm. Their teeth are, are super, super sharp, serrated sharp. They can cut a really clean little like dime-sized patch of skin off. And their saliva is an anticoagulant, so blood flows really easily. And they just lap it up with no pain. You don't even notice it, and they fly away. And then you've just got a little patch that's bleeding, but it doesn't. it's not like it's a... An artery it's just like the it's like a paper cut right so none of this sucking creatures dry right, exactly yeah like this poor little guys but i can, I can see it being like anything. a nuisance to farmers where they're like gosh dang it my cows look like they have i don't know warts or something like i don't know it looks not very good yeah and i don't know if they are a vector of any disease it's possible i don't know i'd have to look that up my gut which is not an empirically it's not peer-reviewed but We'll take hypotheses. Yeah. Is that they're fairly harmless? I mean, if your if your food source dies every time you are trying to get a little bit of blood from it, that wouldn't be a very economical setup strategy. <laughs> um, Wildly inefficient yeah. method of grocery shopping. Exactly. So. <laughs> I can imagine it's not going to be awesome. We have just debunked an entire host of misconceptions and myths. So let's talk about the real scary stuff. Let's talk about extinction. And in the email that I sent you, you're like, you know, a lot of these animals are at a higher risk of extinction. So can you please expand upon that? Because I didn't know that. Yeah. When, when people get to know me, they come, they come into my office to see all the frog paraphernalia. If you've read my research or if you've followed any sort of social media of mine, you see that I have reptiles and amphibians and all these things. <clears throat> but growing up, my favorite animal was always the elephant, right? Because it's awesome. Yes. But I've, I've since changed that. Not because I don't think elephants are cool. I, honestly, in my heart of hearts, I'm still like, oh, that elephants are probably my favorite animal. But I say uh, frog now because 
everybody loves an elephant. You don't ever have to convince somebody why elephants are cool. You're like, did you know elephants are cool? And everyone's like, yeah, I knew that. But reptiles and amphibians, my expertise in, and a lot of these other kind of quote unquote creepy crawlies um, are harder to love. A lot of the, a lot of the reason because of this kind of instinctual, they're they're just generally disliked, right? They're slimy, they're scaly, they have sharp teeth, they make weird noises, they're very not human. And so they need they need more love. Amphibians especially, 42% of all known uh, amphibian species are at risk of extinction. Oh, That's wow. the highest rate of any vertebrate. Reptiles are not too far off that. I think it's like 27%, 30%. And a lot of that is because of the conservation programs that have been instigated for tigers and lions and elephants and things like that are, are doing well, I should say. Like, there's always more work that needs to be done. But you can you can kind of stabilize that. And, and they are just getting mountains of funding because everyone wants to save the orangutans. Right. And I mean, they're mammals and we're yeah. mammals and there's that empathy factor and they're cute and fuzzy. Exactly. You know. But there are more more herps, more herpetofauna, reptiles and amphibians, than there are any of the other vertebrate, terrestrial vertebrate species combined. Okay, so... More species, that is. That's one, like, a horrifying percentage up for threatened or vulnerable or, you know, at risk. And then you have them being a huge percentage of the ecosystem. So now it's your turn to tell the scary Halloween campfire story. What would happen? What is this nightmare scenario? If these animals just start just dropping off the face of the earth, what would happen? And why is that the scariest story ever told? We need these animals. The This is a large portion of our biomass. So I know this is a, kind of a weird, weird avenue to go down, but if you melted down all of the animals into just like weight, Reptiles and amphibians, especially terrestrial, not ocean dwellers, are probably going to represent over two thirds of all life in that in that sense. So you Whoa. you can if you melt it down, again, this is a kind of a weird way to phrase it. But all all okay. the elephants. It's Halloween. We melt there everything. You go, exactly. All the elephants and rhinos and hippos and bison and all the big mammals. And you did the same thing with all the two three gram frogs and salamanders and snakes. They would be vastly outweighed. And that biomass movement is really really important so if you think back to our third grade life sciences of how energy from the sun goes to the plants goes to the bugs goes to the primary consumers secondary consumers tertiary consumers all that stuff that huge chunk of the base of the pyramid is composed of these creepy crawlies that nobody likes uh, and so similarly if you built a pyramid and then you just took out the big middle chunk you would have an you know, well, an entire ecosystem collapsed, right? And so this is this is kind of why you should care on a practical level, but also on a on a kind of a deeper level. This is a group of animals that we simply don't know. In my in my research in Costa Rica, I did bioacoustic research on leaf litter frogs. These are uh, frogs that are about the size of your pinky nail, um, and they're full grown adults. And my research was to simply describe what they sounded like. My first study species was called the vocal dink frog. A vocal was in its name, and nobody had ever described what the call sounded like. Huh. And so this this is just a huge portion of animals that we don't we don't know. 
at all. If you look up the Wikipedia page for any mammal, find the most obscure mammal outside the family of rodents, and you'll find a Wikipedia page that's filled out fairly well. The citations are all there. And then you compare it to a really well-known frog, like the yellow dart frog. You know, it's the big golden one everyone looks at. That's going to have, that's like one of the most commonly known frogs, and you're going to have a chunk of, of information and like probably, I'm going to guess, like 10 citations. The disparity of, of knowledge is, is so great to the extent of one night I was out in in the tropics, late, late, late at night, we found this frog, and its call sounds like a, like a really small kiss, a little... And um, we found it, and we were so excited. It was called, it's called Crowgaster Potociferus. That was the scientific name. Common name, I couldn't tell. And I was able to get video of this, and we were so, so excited. And my, after we were getting all this, my advisor told me we were looking at the video again. He says, you know, you're probably the only person on the planet right now that has a video of this frog calling. And we're, of course, probably one of the few people who have seen this frog call at all. And this is a common frog. It's not, it's not like this. Uh, we were not, we were, we were on a fairly well-traveled nature reserve, uh, right off the main pathway. And yet I was the only one who had ever recorded that. Austin was so kind to send me not only the video, but audio file of this cute little frog. And so I'm going to play it for you now. If you want to see the video, it's on my Instagram page. Imagine all the frogs or all the snakes and frogs and bugs that live 10 feet off that mean. We simply don't know them. And my favorite biological author, E.O. Wilson, passed away earlier this year, or maybe at the very end of last year, but he says the intrinsic value of knowing is priceless. I love that. And that is going into my book of quotes. That I... the, the intrinsic value of knowing is priceless. And so when we wager natural spaces that we don't know, and we're trying to figure out whether or not we should develop it or anything like that, we're risking a really easily quantifiable number of money, which should be this unknown and priceless natural prospect. If again, we can talk about just simply with each frog having its own specific chemical makeup in its skin that is completely unknown to the science of chemistry. And it goes extinct without us ever knowing what the species was yeah but a tragedy in and of itself and then you know you're looking at the loss of just you know untapped knowledge and untapped benefit to not just man but the entire environment you have this like ongoing um i guess we consider it a genocide and then you start having issues with also pests and disease i'd imagine i know that there is a place in china that is so toxic, all of these died, and people have to literally hand-pollinate mm -hmm. their fruit trees, which, as odd as that sounds to us, that can't, it's a reality for some, and the fact that it's a reality for some should be a terrifying prospect for anyone uh, looking at, you know, extinction of the small species that we don't see, and as, you know, just listen to you talk about just surface-level information about the creatures we don't even consider and are often afraid of, the invaluable role they play in the environment is just immediately gone. And now we're left with horribly unefficient 
uh, methods to fix the problems that we could have, one, just kept them around or learned from them and developed better methods, which is sad and terrifying all at once. It's something I don't like to think about very often is the concept of losing uh, these creepy crawlies because that would be cataclysmic. It's the opposite of the plague of frogs in, in Egypt, um, but it would still be a plague yeah. in itself. Yeah, it is hard to think about. And I added this question last minute. It's kind of a good way to just roll into it. How do you keep yourself optimistic and positive in the light of so many tr- changes and just bad, bad news and bad decisions and general fecal matter that yeah. is everything right now? What do you do? Uh, you got to stay hopeful. It's it's a, it's a necessity to stay hopeful. Uh for the planet because when you lose hope then you stop trying and then it's really hopeless when you stop trying but keep in mind that there are nerds like you and me who are getting the word out there and every time i tell that story or i show that video of that frog calling i take a lot of solace and a lot of hope that whoever i show that to they come away with a much deeper appreciation they understand why that's important it's not that these animals are unlovable or unlikable. They're just unknown. And so the hope is, as we get to know them, we get to realize how awesome they are, how impressive they are, um, and how necessary they are. That's what keeps me going, because I know that every story I tell about why bats are amazing, why uh, snakes are not evil, why frogs need our help, People listen and people care, uh, and so that's that's the hope, and that's how I at least try to stay optimistic. I love that, and this also rolls neatly into what is essentially a lightning round for people who are inspired to make a difference. One, how do you be kind to spiders, <laughs> and how are you how are you kind to their little infestations? You don't want them in the house, but you also don't want to harm them. So what do you do? Good question. You could probably take a little bit of solace, or maybe this will, this will, this will have one of two effects, good or bad. You're probably only seeing a very small fraction of spiders that are actually living in your house when you do see them. So letting outside or even squishing it, uh, although I, I usually avoid that, you can probably take solace that that's a very small percentage of your spider population, and so you're not really affecting that <laughs> that ecosystem. Maybe that scares you, um, but at least you can. Uh, I, I actually am comforted by the fact that I can't see the spiders in my house because I know they're necessary, but also I don't want to see them. Yeah, so you don't you don't really have to worry too much about um, cleaning up some cobwebs off the bookshelf or things like that because there there will still be uh, spiders regardless. Um, unless you have like a, like a pest control spray, your whole house bug bomb type thing. But That was going to be my next question, like... Perhaps maybe avoid doing that and sealing off your windows better. Yeah. Yep. Just seal it. Make sure you're, there's no nooks and crannies to the spots that you don't want spiders. And then yeah, typically pesticides, bug bombs, stuff like that, you should not. You should just avoid in general because um, it usually is going to have ill effect on animals that you do want to keep around. Right. And then, okay, so here's a good one. For those of us who have yards, what can you do to make your yard more friendly to creepy crawlies? Without putting yourself at risk, because I mean, no one wants like a surprise poisonous or slash venomous creature, yes. you know, living in yeah. an area that they need to get to. But, you know, 
along the lines of, of avoiding, you know, harmful pesticides and stuff like that. What do you recommend? Yeah. One, this is, is you'll hear this a lot uh, now that we're going into the fall season. If your HOA doesn't have a problem, leave your leaves. Yes. That is going to create a good, great spot for not only the creepy crawlies, not just the bugs and the and the spiders and all these things, but also the butterflies and the bees and things like that that are, are native species of bees that use the that leaf litter as a place to hide out the winter. Um, put up some hidey holes uh, in places that are covered for the during the day uh, that might stay a little bit more humid, relatively. Simply putting like. A big rock or a uh, half a log in a undisclosed portion, maybe a, a more unsightly place in your yard, is great. Great space for, uh, space for refuge. Keeping a small place of standing water, whether it's in a pot or a, a, a pan or just a kind of a natural little pond thing, is always great as well. And then if you do see uh, like a rattlesnake, for example, here in the Northwest, give give Fish and Game a call. They're really, really professional, uh, uh, and they'll relocate that that um, snake. And then once that spe- that snake is gone, you'll probably get a gopher snake move in if you got because re- the reason the snake is there is probably because there's rodents nearby. Um, but once you get your gopher snake in there, amazing. Now you don't have to worry about anybody else coming in that way. That is the kind of uh, roommate I would prefer. I would definitely prefer a gopher snake over a rat. I have to yeah, admit. Yeah, me too. Um, just disease-wise. Those are really... I love how simple those are because everyone can do it. And it's just... I, I think that gives me hope and I know it gives a lot of people hope just to be like, oh, all I need to do is just like put out a little log or just make like a little section. That's it. And I think if everyone did that, the impacts would be astronomical mm-hmm. just in your local community. So I love that. On our way out, um, what are your top three tips for sustainability and being a better steward of the planet? And I know that that just kind of, you answered some as far as the yard goes, but in your daily life, what are your top tips? The, as far as passive cool sustainability tips, um, you got your classic things like getting rid of single use plastics or even plastics in general, try to use you know woods and metals and things like that. My wife is a, uh, a garden teacher, so I've got to push uh, native plants you got to, um, in your yard, if you want to yes. save on water usage and fertilizer usage, go to your local nature center or botanical garden, and oftentimes you'll find that they've got plants for free. That's cool. And you don't even have to water them nearly as much uh, because they're native plants, so the native weather is going to do its best. And then it's also going to help harbor habitat for native species. So it's a win-win-win. Love it. Yeah, those are my those are my tips as you as you get ready for the spring awesome so as we close out this episode is there anything else you want to throw out there add anything in there if you ever encounter an animal that you have an immediate adverse reaction to try putting yourself in their shoes and usually you can reason yourself out of it so if you if you don't want to be scared of an animal try thinking about what the animal's thinking uh from its perspective and that's a good it's a good method be a little empathy i love that empathy Austin, thank you so much for taking time out of your weekend to sit down and chat with me about all things creepy crawly. I admit, after I was done recording this, I immediately burst out of my recording closet and, much to my husband's dismay, immediately began rapid-firing animal facts at him. I also stand a little convicted. When it comes to conservation efforts, I rarely pay much attention to these little creatures. I'd like to believe it's their lack of fuzz and, well, eyelids in some cases, but the truth of the matter is, 
I had a lot of deep ingrained learned biases that I apparently need to sit with for a while. Half the reason I started this podcast was so that I could corner really smart science humans and unfurl my ever-growing scroll of questions in their direction without them fleeing in fear from a very small human that won't seem to go away. The other half was to dispel myths like these and spread the love and knowledge about this amazing planet we live on. I hope that this episode has inspired you to air hug your nearest herb from a very healthy distance and then wash your hands afterwards for good measure. A special thank you for this show goes out to a much smarter than me, writer friend Sierra, who said I should do a Halloween episode about creepy crawlies. She sat with me for a full hour and a half and they racked my brain trying to figure out how to organize this episode and she was invaluable in getting this organized. So Sierra, thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to support the podcast, remember I have an Instagram. It is at wildbrood, that is W-I-L-D-B-R-E-W-E-D. I also have a website, also wildbrood, same spelling, but instead of .com, it is .art, so wildbrood.art. There you can find very grumpy, pre-caffeinated animals that you can buy a print or a sticker of, and a minimum 20% of your purchase is going directly to the conservation effort of the month. And here I am, feeling very guilty that it is big fluffy mammals. Perhaps next time, we'll do something a little slimy. Thanks again, guys, so much for your continued support and listening to this. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. All right, now, I know it's getting cold outside, but go outside and touch some grass.